Practice has always massively fascinated me. When I was a kid, I would go to a lot of golf tournaments. At the time, I didn't play golf, but my dad's a golf pro and golfs heavily in our family. And I would go to events and I would look at the players' practice and I would see that they would all look as if they hit the ball really well on the driving range. But then basically when they finished their rounds, there was huge variance in their scores. And I was always interested as to why that was. And I would always watch them hitting balls on the driving ranges and practice ground and think, you know, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? Are they structuring it in a certain way? Uh, why are they, you know, what, what are they doing? Why are they doing it? And that always really fascinated me. So I just thought I would try and get a lot of answers to all of my questions. You are listening to the Golf Science Lab podcast. My name is Cordy Walker, and I'm on a mission to figure out how to improve the way that we learn and get better at golf. I've been able to travel all over the world talking with leaders in the industry, from instructors to researchers to golfers themselves, learning how they're getting better at golf and what that means for you. Hey everyone, today on the show, we're going to look at some new research on practice. This was presented at this past year's 2018 World Scientific Congress of Golf, and we're going to sit down and talk about it so we can improve our skills and shoot lower scores when we head to the golf course. And, you know, practice and learning is one of my favorite topics to talk about. In fact, it was the focus of our first podcast season. Gosh, that had to be a couple years ago now. Had on a bunch of really, really good researchers and coaches talking about learning and practice. One of my favorite seasons, something that I still reference all the time. If you haven't listened to them, I can't recommend them enough. Head over to golfsciencelab.com slash practice and you'll see all of those episodes. I highly recommend going through them. And I feel like it's one of the biggest areas that we all can improve in the golf industry and we need some big changes. A great catalyst though is good research like we're going to learn about today. This episode is brought to you by Adele Golf and we're going to talk single length irons. If you've ever wondered how a single length four iron goes just as far as a standard length, well, I have as well. So we asked David Adele, and he explained. The main attributes to single length that provide the benefit and distance that is the misconception based on its being shorter is the fact that the mass of the head is generally about 30 grams to 35 grams heavier than a standard four iron. And the two inch difference in club head speed is minimal compared to the amount of force that's being applied to the golf ball in a more perpendicular manner than a lofted golf club that compresses the ball. And with this face flex technology and more mass, that golf ball is going to spin and get height and get distance. Adele Golf makes amazing single length irons and you should check them out. They have an amazing demo program so you can test them out before purchasing. You can head over and get all the details at golfsciencelab.com slash Adele. We have a bunch of podcasts, videos, diving into single length irons. And if you do get a set, tag us, Golf Science Lab, Adele Golf, and a picture on Twitter, Instagram. Let's meet our guest for today. My name is Nikki Lum. I'm a PJ golf professional. I'm based in Bristol, England, but I tend to travel all over the world coaching. I, well, As soon as I qualified as a PGA pro, I knew that I wanted to specialize in golf practice and performance. So I did a master's in sports coaching where I specialized in elite performance. And then when I finished that, I went straight on to do my PhD, which was entitled Optimizing Practice for Peak Performance in Professional Golf. 
So basically, I was trying to look at all areas of practice, trying to understand what players do, and then looking at ways that hopefully they can improve the way they practice so that they perform better, most crucially, actually on the golf course when they're competing. Nikki started this research we're focusing in on by interviewing European tour players to really try to figure out where to focus her study on practice. One of my early findings was that I found that inside 50 yards, players tended to engage a lot in all different types of practice. So they'd engage in block practice, they'd engage in serial practice, they'd engage in random practice, and there'd be mass variation in what they would do. However, there seems to be this line of 50 yards And over 50 yards, players significantly seem to just engage in block practice. And I just wanted to see whether if they continued engaging in the different types of practice, so they did block practice, they did serial practice and random practice over 50 yards, would they learn more? Would they perform better in practice? More importantly, would they perform better on the golf course? And basically, I just wanted to find out the answer to that question. So that's why I designed this study. Let's define a few terms quickly so we are all on the same page. So, number one, we have block practice. Block practice is basically when you hit the same shots time and time again. So, if you had a a three-foot putt, for instance, you would hit that three-foot putt again and again and again from the same spot. This is pretty much what we typically do in our traditional paradigm of golf practice is we'll take the seven iron and we'll hit it and we'll work on something. And that is block practice. The next type of practice, serial practice, is, is when you know it's a player practicing in a sequence or a mixed order. So you may have it have a target at 60 yards, then a target at 70 yards, then a target at 80 yards. So kind of a, a sequence uh, that is serial practice. And then we have random practice, which is basically hitting a, a different club towards a different target on every shot randomizing what we're doing and this random practice is almost most like what we do on the golf course all right now that we have that let's hear about the mechanics of what's going on here what i did was to start with i had two groups of players and there were six players in each group and all of the participants were pga professionals or assistant professionals um, who were all either qualified through the uk pga or were going through training, which meant that they'd achieved a minimum of a four handicap prior to turning pro. So for the purposes of my research, the players were at an elite level. And basically, I had these two groups, six players in each group, and one group of players just engaged in the blocked practice that the players had described to me when I'd done my original research. And then the second group of players engaged in a combination of blocked serial and random practice. And what happened was we, first of all, we had a 10-shot pre-test. So all the players hit 10 shots to 10 totally random distances. And then all of the players engaged in five 100-shot practice sessions. So the control group were just engaging in the block practice. And my test group were engaging in the different, in the three different types of practice. And then before the start of the sixth session, I got all the players again to engage in a test. And I call this the 10-shot mid-test which basically gave me an opportunity to see whether there were any differences in the performances of the players at that stage. And then following that 10-shot mid-test, the players engaged in a further five 100-shot practice sessions. And then when they'd finished, which meant that they'd hit 1,000 shots, 
in total over 10 practice sessions. They then had a two-day break. Then they came back in and they engaged in a 10-shot post-test or retention test so they could actually see how much learning had taken place. And that was the way that the, the study was structured. And basically, I um, used a launch monitor so that I could record the accuracy of all of their shots. And basically, I was looking at how many shots landed inside 10 feet of the target on every shot that they hit. I recorded how many shots finished within 10 feet of the target. So that was the way that the test was structured. So we have these players that are doing a, a test at the beginning of this. They are going through 10 practice sessions that they had to do over 21 days. In each session, they hit 100 shots. Each shot was tracked on a, a launch monitor. Uh, and Nikki had a control group that was doing just block practice. Uh, and she had another group which was doing block, serial, and random practice. Let's dive into both of these groups and see exactly what they were doing in each of these practice sessions. Basically, all of the targets were between 70 and 100 yards. And the block practice group basically hit 10 balls to a target at 70 yards, but then hit 10 balls to a target at 80 yards, 10 balls to a target at 90 yards, 10 balls to a target at 100 yards, and then they repeated that sequence. They do another 10 at 70, another 10 at 80, another 10 at 90, another 10 at 100, and then another 10 at 70, another 10 at 80. And that was their 100 shots. So did you notice just from watching players, like people in that control group, did they have a pile of balls next to them and they were just kind of like pulling one over, hitting it, pulling another one over, hitting it again, and kind of going through that classic scrape and hit? concept that we hear about yeah very much so although i did put the balls down in groups of five so they, they could they couldn't kind of they had after five balls they would have to go and get another five balls they couldn't just kind of fire 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 i did try to put it make them have a bit of spacing in there as well but very much so you know you could see that they were just going through the motions and they you know and they were just and they were just they were hitting shots in comparison to the other group that were engaging in the blocked serial and random practice you could actually see they were cognitively engaged they were thinking through shots and they were definitely far more mentally alert and creating action plans in their head. And they were definitely challenged a lot more within the practice. Okay. So that was what our control group, they were doing the block practice. That was the structure of that. Now let's look at that other group, the one that was doing the block, the serial and the random. And here's a hint. This is the one that we're interested in. If I say discuss it in kind of a set of 25 balls, they might do five shots to 70 yards five shots to 80, five shots to 90, five shots to 100, and then one shot to a target at 67 yards, one to a target at 72 yards, one to a target at 100 yards, maybe one to a target at 87 yards, and one to a target at 89 yards. And then as it progressed, they may do, they may have hit two balls to a target at 70 yards, two to a target at 90 yards, two to a target at um, 80 yards, two to a target at 100 yards, and then again, some random distances. So basically, there it was. It was just creating more shot variation. I staggered it so that the sessions were becoming more challenging to players as they went through it. Because obviously, you know, what they did two. The first five sessions were very similar. They were basically combining an equal mix of block serial and random practice. But on session six to ten, they were doing less. They started doing less block practice, more serial and more random. And then on the, la the latter couple of sessions, they were doing less serial and much more random. 
So I basically, I, I structured the practice intervention so that the players would be being more challenged as the sessions progressed, which I think is a very vital aspect of practice because it's really important that, pra- that players are always appropriately challenged and hopefully over 10 sessions, they are going to start to improve. So therefore I actually need to raise the challenge point to make the practices more stimulating for the players. All right, the moment that we've all been waiting for, uh, drum roll please, what happened? We can be 95% confident with the result that if players engage in a block serial and random practice, and they are then tested and we look at their, you know, their attention results and where this skill that they've learned in practice is likely to transfer to the golf course. We can be 95% confident that they have improved and that, you know, that they'll be able to take that skill to the golf course. The group that engaged in block practice were more accurate in their shot making than the group that were engaging in blocked serial and random practice. However, when I say they were more accurate, they were more accurate in terms of visual trend. Statistically, there was no significant differences in the performance of either of the groups during practice. The interesting results really were in the testing. So at pre-test, there were no significant differences in the performances of either group. But at mid-test, already the group that were engaging in the blocked serial and random practice was shown that they had learned more and they were actually more accurate in their performances than the group that had just engaged in the blocked practice. And then when I extended that and tested them in the retention test, the group that had engaged in blocked serial and random practice were even at this stage even more accurate in their performances than the group that had just engaged in block practice during the practice intervention. Okay, so there we have it. Curious, is that what you expected? If you've listened to some of our past episodes, you probably guessed that was going to be the result based on other research. But yeah, the mixture of block, serial, and random, they got better faster, and and they're going to retain that and take that to the golf course. Okay, so that was the study. We have kind of this format. We have the data. Now we're going to spend the rest of this time talking about what this means for us. We're going to run through some very practical you know, practice plans of of how you can implement this Uh, and then look at the big picture of why this works. And then at the very end, there's a, a secondary part of this study looking at feedback. So stay tuned. Let's dive into this. So they mustn't just turn up at the driving range as most of them probably do now with two or three clubs and they get their basket of balls and they stand there and they go fire, fire, fire until they run out of balls. What they need to start doing is taking more time. I suggest that they take all of their clubs in the bag. I like to see players actually get their balls into a maximum of five of groups of five. You know, depending on the standard, it's difficult. I don't think with practice, there's a one size fits all. I think the crucial thing with practice is actually finding ways to appropriately challenge players. In that respect, every player is different. And I also think it depends on what players are actually working on in order to try to determine what kind of practice is going to be best for them. So I always try to break practice down into three areas, technical when they're going to be working on their golf swing, training when they're trying to get repetitions in to actually increase accuracy and precision, 
and then tournaments where it's kind of one shot, one opportunity, and they're actually trying to replicate exactly what they would do on the golf course in a competition. I would say to start with at the start, maybe depending on the handicap, if they're quite a high handicap, they may have five balls and they want to hit five balls with that club to a target. If it was a lower handicap, maybe three balls to a target. But then when they've hit, and if it's you know a low handicap, one shot to a target, and they change the target, they change the club, and therefore they just they put constant variation into their practice. And I always think it's a good idea with players if they actually take all of their 13 clubs to the practice ground, obviously they can leave the putter in the bag and actually try and hit balls with every club when they're practicing, as opposed to what most players do at the moment, which is probably favor two or three clubs. So I hear all the time from people, how do I practice this new swing technique I'm working on? You know, Cordy, you're talking about practice, you're talking about learning, but I'm working on this swing change right now. Does this apply to me? So for one, is this a good goal? Is this idea of I'm going to change my swing technique, is that a good idea for most of us? What if you spent some time working on skills and creating functionality with what you have? Spending a little bit of more time on that. And I was curious what Nikki had to say on this. She has some great thoughts on blending these two, working on technique and building skills. Because obviously, you know, we're going to have to work on swing technique if, if we're not functional, if we can't accomplish the goals that we want to. So, you know, we're looking at blending these two. I think they need to blend the two, but at different times. So obviously it's important that players build a good, good enough swing technique so that they can, you know, try to become consistent to an extent and be out. They have a way of trying to get the ball to go to a target on a, you know, as, as often as possible. But I think they need to, to kind of to, to blend the two. So I would suggest when they arrive at the driving range, Maybe if they have 50 balls, they may want to spend the first 20 balls actually working on their swing technique and working on whatever it is that their PJ professional is encouraging them to do. And then they, after those 20 shots, they want to walk away and then come back. And at that point, actually try to engage in the training of practice side, which is where they start trying to actually replicate to a better, a more, a better extent what they're actually going to try and do on the golf course. So at this point, if they are a higher handicapper, maybe in sets of five or in sets of three, they try and actually pick a target. And with that club, they try and hit the ball towards that target. And they just record how many shots they can get within inside a target. And maybe if they're a high handicap, they, you know, they imagine a 30 or 40 feet radius. So the practice is actually designed so that they can get some success. And I would suggest maybe trying to do that for about 20 shots. And then with the remaining 10 balls of their practice session, basically try and replicate exactly what they would do on the golf course. So maybe imagine they're playing a few holes at their local course, or they could hit a driver at one target, followed by trying using a seven iron, hitting that to a different target, followed by hitting a pitching wedge to a different target. So they're basically trying to actually simulate playing golf and put as much variation into their practice as possible. Because even if they're a very high handicapper and they're struggling, if they are still going out on the golf course, the more they can actually replicate in practice what they do on the golf course, the more helpful that's going to be for when they actually do get on the golf course. Whereas I think at the moment, the way most golfers practice is they'll go to the practice ground with two or three clubs. They'll hit maybe 20 shots to the same target with one club. 
And they might find they had great success on the practice ground with that club, but they've kind of lulled themselves into a false sense of security because all they've done is kind of repeat the same shot time and time again. But when they go onto the golf course, they're not going to get that luxury because on the golf course, no two shots are the same unless the first one goes out of bounds. So therefore, if they are going to be playing golf, which hopefully everybody will do and should do, they need to try to actually replicate that on the practice ground first. Another thing that Nikki mentioned when we were chatting is she thinks it's crucial to decide, you know, how many golf balls that we're going to hit when focusing on technique. And then, you know, how many golf balls are we going to work on mimicking what we face on the golf course so that you actually get better at, at playing golf. So let's say that my number one goal is I want to get better at hitting, let's say, shots from 125 to 150 yards. How would Nikki suggest that I go about that in a big picture context? If they were trying to improve on their training, so this is purely trying to improve in, in terms of their accuracy on the course, the first thing they need to do is try to stop thinking about their swing technique. I find that when players go to practice, it seems that 99% of the time, they're actually thinking about what they're doing in their golf swing. And at the end of a round of golf, you know, it wants to know your score. It wants to know what your total score is. It doesn't want to know how well you swung the club during your 18 holes. So basically, I'd be encouraging players to when they're trying to do this area here, which is about training, forget about their golf swing and to really try and zone in on hitting their shots as close as possible to a target. So maybe if you've got a kind of a mid to high handicapper, they may get five balls and they may get a club, we'll say a seven iron, and they may try and hit it. If they haven't got a launch monitor, they may try and hit that seven iron towards a target at about 160, 170 yards. And what I would suggest that they do is with those five balls is they imagine they've got a 20 foot radius from the target and they actually count how many of those shots they hit actually land within that 20 yard, 20 feet radius. And they actually write it down. I think it's really important with practice that players actually record their results and monitor them so that if, if practice has become too easy, they can then make them a bit harder and they can make them more challenging. And if the practice is too challenging, obviously then they need to make it a little bit easier um, because, you know, practice is the, the purpose is to get better and to learn. But also we need to build players' confidence at the same time if we can. There's one other really interesting aspect of this study, and it's around feedback. Specifically, when players were hitting these shots, they were on a launch monitor. What happened if she gave them specific detailed feedback on where the ball went? No, I didn't, because if I just if I kind of explain to you now what, what how I progressed the study. So what I did was I when I'd seen that the results with the group that engaged in block steering and random practice was so much better than the group that had just engaged in block practice, I decided to see whether there was any ways that I could actually make practice time even more effective for players. So I decided to do that with the use of feedback in the form of knowledge of results. So basically, I introduced two more groups. So I, I had one, I called group one the full KR group, and the full KR group meant that they had full knowledge of their results. They engaged in the same blocked serial and random practice that the first group had, had done, but they all, I also told players in this group the exact distance that each of their shots had carried and whether their ball had landed within 10 feet of the target. And then I had a second group that I introduced who again had additional um, feedback from me 
and I gave them feedback to within 10 feet. So I caught so within a 10 foot bandwidth. So again, this group engaged in a combination of blocked serial and random practice. But with this group, I didn't tell them exactly how far their ball had carried. I just purely told them where their ball had landed within 10 feet of the target. So basically what I did was I added two extra groups to my to my original practice um, study. And then these two extra groups had feedback in different forms. One group, I told them exactly how far the ball had uh, carried and whether that shot had landed within 10 feet of the target. And then the second group, I only told them if their shot had landed within 10 feet of the target. And what I then did was I then put all of the group, all of the four groups results together just to see whether there were any trends. And visually, again, the group that had engaged in the blocked practice only, they performed more accurately during the practice intervention um, than the other groups. Interestingly, until the 10th session and on the 10th session, the group that received full knowledge of the results, the group that I was actually telling the players exactly how far their ball had carried on every shot, that group on the 10th practice session was actually more accurate than the other than the players in the other groups. But in, for all the other practice sessions, the group that were just engaged in the block practice, that were just hitting the shots to the same target time and time again, they were more accurate. If I look at the test results for this study, when I gave the players the additional feedback, again, at pre-test, the performances of all the groups were exactly the same. They were not statistically significant. However, at mid-test, a trend had started to emerge and the group that had received the full feedback back from me, the group that were being told exactly how far the ball had carried, they were more accurate in mid-test and retention test than the other groups. And then the second most accurate group were the group that had received feedback to 10 feet, so the group that I told whether their ball had landed within 10 feet of the target. And then the third most accurate group were the group that had engaged in the blocked serial and random practice, but that hadn't received any feedback from me. So basically what the test results show is that if you can actually tell a player exactly how far their ball has traveled or as soon as it lands, that player is going to learn more and is going to benefit more than players that are being given feedback to 10 feet or are basically given no feedback at all and are having to judge for themselves exactly how far the ball has traveled. I think Finding out exactly how far the ball has travelled is invaluable feedback for players to try to improve their precision and help help them to make you know subtle adjustments to their swing because they can see the ball flight but they they don't know exactly how far the ball has travelled. I mean even at seventy yards you are guessing you know three four or five yards and obviously you know at the elite level today players are just so good that if they can actually zone in even more their distance control. So they can hit it, you know, within within a yard or two yards. I think that's going to be massively influential on um, helping them to perform better when they are on the course. Wow, this was a really fun episode. I really enjoyed diving into this. I hope you enjoyed it too. It was super interesting for me to dive into all this and, and figure out this study, to talk with Nikki, look back at some of the other episodes we've done, other research that we've looked at, and put this together. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Make sure to subscribe to the show so you can hear all the episodes and stay up to date on everything that we're covering. I would really appreciate a review in Apple Podcasts. If you get the chance to, to throw a review in there, we are up to 55 right now, which is fantastic. Would love to throw a handful more in your feedback would be great in there. Appreciate it. 
This episode was hosted and written by me, Cordy Walker. You can follow me on Twitter at Cordy Walker and was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Publish Productions. We'll see y'all next week.